we've played with, uh, you know, authenticity so much that now it's like performative and like we can generate it from Brene Brown all the way to other aspects. And Mm -hmm. so what I, it makes me pull back and think, okay, like what is originality in this today's world? Like what is art in this current moment? Uh, and, I don't know. I, I guess I'm all over the place. Let me try to rein it in with a question. Yeah. Think back to your high school experience and think about the world that we're in. What did you not get from your school that you wish you got your schooling that you wish you had? Like what was the biggest gap between reality and the education you received? That's a great question. Um, I mean, collaboration. Back to the Broken Copier conversation about teaching. My name is Jim Mares. And I'm Marcus Luther. So some reminders about the show. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators to bring helpful analysis and collaboration to folks working in the classroom. Most importantly, the show is about saying thank you to all the teachers out there, past, present, and future, who understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. If this is your first time listening, welcome. We'd love to hear from you on social media at The Broken Copier, and you can subscribe to episodes and other writing at thebrokencopier.substack.com. If you'd like to support, we'd love for you to rate and review the podcast wherever you stream and to just text your friends a link to an episode so that they can tune in as well. So Marcus, talking about technology today, huh? Yeah, and trying to, I don't know how to best phrase this, but trying to step outside the guardrails of the typical technology debate uh, when this debate talk happens, you know, online or in, you know, the dreaded teacher's lounge of the cell phones or even just new platforms that we're using to do the same things. uh, We kind of think that misses the point of how the technological world we're already living in is dramatically different than the one our schools are designed for, our classrooms and our curriculum, even what we do is designed for. So how do we reconcile that disconnect in terms of making sure what students are getting in school prepares them to be successful in the current world, not the world of like 100 years ago, uh, potentially? But before we dive into that, like usually, we want to start off with just talking about kind of how things are going. And mm-hmm. we've really emphasized, given uh, this time of year lately, uh, what's been going well. So let's just flip it. Jim, what's something that's not going well? Something that kind of been on your mind because teachers tend to think about things outside of the classroom that they wish oh, yeah. that was better. What's What's been on your mind that you'd like to have be better in your classroom? Yeah, so... I feel like my struggle here is going to be, is going to tie in really well with our technology AI writing debate uh, or discussion rather, because the thing that I'm sort of struggling right now is, is word count with students. Um, So I teach and and I know that you're Marcus and I are both AP humanities teachers. So if you're in that world, you'll understand that like uh, for the college board essays for AP Lang and AP literature, do you guys, are they called FRQs in AP Lang, free response questions? 
We don't call them that. I call them just focused essays, but that, I think okay. they're pretty similar in terms of like the rubric and all that. Yeah. So for some context, if, if people aren't familiar with the AP humanities structure, uh, the essays are often called FRQs, which stand for free response questions. And they are, it's timed writing, basically. And you, we can go back and forth on like the merits of timed writing and whether or not it should be timed. But regardless, I sort of have an obligation to prepare students to be able to construct, uh, you know, two or three, a two or three paragraph essay within 40 minutes. And that, uh, so, you know, that kind of breaks down to being able to fluently write a full solid paragraph within 10 to 12 minutes. Um, that is relatively free of like grammar mistakes and has cohesive ideas and argument. It's, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to do. Um, and that is like a very serious jump and is very intimidating for a lot of my students uh, because mostly up until this point, they don't have a lot of experience with timed writing. Um, and so, yeah, this past year, it's been a real struggle because I am framing this for them. I'm tr I try to like uh, get multiple opportunities for revision. I feel like the overall like writing structure that we have in place is there, but I'm having a lot of kids check out and not, and feel like it's too hard and they don't want to do it. And we'll spend an, you know, an entire class period uh, in response, even the day after we've like read the excerpt and we've outlined the question and they've picked, you know, like the actual hitting the word count and getting across the finish line is is tough and i have i have more students than i would like even at this point of the year not you know walking out of that class period with a time drafting class period with you know barely over one paragraph um and i feel like that's somewhat frustrating for me because it's hard to tell it's hard to tell if it's like they're not even trying or they really can't do it. And I tend to like think of everything as a skill and give students the benefit of the doubt. And it's like, all right, this is what you can produce. These are the next steps. Um, but it's just sometimes it's frustrating because I feel like sometimes students genuinely just like are sitting and I watch them just sit there and space out and not do it. So I don't know. That's been tough. And it's, so it's frustrating for me. I'm sure it's frustrating for them too to feel like, oh, this, I know I'm supposed to do this thing and I can't do it. Um, so that's the thing. That's what I'm, I'm problem solving around uh, and trying to like build fluency and build confidence and, and feel like you can construct a full piece of writing within, you know, 40 to 45 minutes. Yeah, no, I, I feel that, uh, you know what my, I mean, we've been doing this long enough. You probably know what my follow-up question to that is going to be, uh, have you talked to them about like that frustration or like had that conversation with them individually? Yeah, I have. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's hard individually to hit every single person, but you know, we have in true charter school form, we have a mandated after school tutoring, uh, structure. And so I have, so what I've done is I've split students into groups that are kind of broadly based on their essays that I've seen so far or their ability to hit these these benchmarks and yeah, we talk about that. And I, and my first question to them is to, you know, to, 
how much did you try? Like, do you feel like you gave your whole effort in this? And some of them will say, yes, like I'm confused and, and I don't know what to say. And others will say, no, like I just sat there and didn't try very hard. And then, so those conversations can be productive. Um, but it, but it's also like, okay, yes, we've had the conversation about the frustration. We've identified the barriers. And so now it's a matter of practicing to get over the barriers. And, and that just takes time. I think sometimes that takes time and reiteration and practice. Um, but it's frustrating. It's, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for everyone involved, but the thing that I, and in, in, in those moments, that's when I try to turn into like the motivational guy. Like I, you know, you can do it. It's not too hard for you. Um, I gave, I gave what I thought was a pretty effective sort of whole group push because a lot of people, a lot of folks in AP Lang, especially are like saying that the class saying that it's too hard, like saying like, this is ridiculous. These are like, these multiple choice questions are too hard. This essay, like there's no point in this. And so I showed them the numbers of the global and state pass rates for the AP test. And basically I said, all right, the amount of people who earned a qualifying score in AP Lang last year, if you, if you look at everyone who took the test, if you add up the amount of people who earned a three, a four and a five, you would sell out Fenway Park, which we're in Boston. So this is a very tangible thing. You would sell out Fenway Park 7.63 times. So my point is there's a lot of people who are in 11th grade doing this stuff that can do it. And you can do that too. Like it's not, it's not too hard. And that really worked for a lot of kids like that, that helped them see like, all right, no, it's not too hard. There are a lot of people who are doing this and I can be one too. Um, so hopefully before, you know, we go on to winter break, we'll have a little bit more confidence. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's tough. It's a, it's a tricky balance to be like motivating a student across a skill gap that they don't have or having like authentic conversations of, yeah, well, actually you need to come in and work a little bit more. You need to be more focused. You need to, if you walk in with better notes, you would be more confident, right? All that kind of stuff. So that's, that's, that's kind of, one of the, my big struggle that I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. And I, I definitely, I appreciate your lens of a skill gap. Cause I think what my going into this year where I've like shifted my priority in my AP classes is the idea of original interpretation. Like, can you find something in this text, whether story, poem, novel that no one's seen before, which is hard, but I think yeah. so often with all the tools and resources that the big struggle is where it's like, I don't know what to write about is you don't feel excited if you're just trying to regurgitate an idea that's been lectured to you or that you've Googled online. We actually like, just to pivot here, uh, we had a, I was definitely like hitting a wall in one of my AP classes the other week. So we did like this game, which is going to sound like the nerdiest game ever. Uh, I made them brainstorm as many juxtapositions as they could come up with at that point in the novel and they had a race, like we like turn on the clock, you know, they, mm -hmm. they, then they're in groups, they're racing, they're making this list. Like, you know, I, I turn on like this intense background music, like YouTube, like, 
you know, we got this like dramatic orchestra playing. Yeah, you know, Lord, like are, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like you know yeah. whatever you can find like on like a, a free Google search, Excellent. and you know just on the spot do this, and then halfway through the time I change the rules on them, and they of course get very frustrated and say it's really about what's the best one that you can come up with that no one's thought of. So like the most innovative one that you can. So like they now are like looking through their lists and they're crossing them out. They're arguing with each other, and then yeah. we have like a little paper crown, kind of almost like Burger King style. And just basically say like, okay, we're going to go through and the first group, you know, we award them the crown because they're the first group. And then every other group tries to steal the crown based on saying what theirs is. And it was so funny because it was like, it gets to the last group and one group had had the crown for like five in a row. Like every group had like put up their juxtaposition, their idea. And it was, and I'm very subjectively saying like, yep, this does, this doesn't. So there's like that power structure, Mm -hmm. but it's getting pretty intense in the classroom. And we get to the last one and they say something and the whole classroom just gets that look kind of like a, Oh, mm-hmm. and it's like completely out of left field in a really powerful way. They had found an entry point of the text. And it's like in the, in the whole, like the other group like takes the crown off and just like hands it to them. Like you have yeah. earned it, the whole class. And my point was, that's what we're looking for. Like that, that's why we do this is yeah. to, come up with your own interpretation that changes the paradigm of how this text is viewed in this entire room. And, and that's the skill that translates, right? It's not a, like most mm-hmm. of these students aren't going to be doing that with poetry 10 years from now, but you might be in a business meeting where you have this data is presented to you and you're that, you need to find that thing that no one else can find and have the confidence to share it. Yeah. So my goal this year, circling back is to try and instill that confidence and enthusiasm with these texts. I mean, we'll have Shakespeare coming up in January. Yeah. Uh, And it's hard because I think it's when you get tired and when you're overwhelmed, you just go with the more generic route. And when you're going with the more generic route, it's hard to have motivation to follow through. I mean, like, look, I I, I told the students this, we're about to write their first longer essay on a novel. Like Mm -hmm. there are like five or six themes that we've been talking about that I can like already picture exactly what you would write. And that's fine if you're in that place, but I really hope you don't. Like, I really hope you find your own interpretation. So I'm trying to find a way as a teacher to mm-hmm. get them to that point where they are confident themselves in seeking out their own interpretation. And that yeah. has been hard. I'm, I think I'm doing better this year than previous years, but we're going to really find out in the next couple of weeks when they get their first longer essay on a novel. Yeah. Um, one quick point that I, that I really love about that. You know, I, from my, from my days in Arkansas, when we shifted to a project-based learning model, one of the things in PBL that people talk about a lot is this idea of like an authentic audience. So are you, and oftentimes what that would mean is like you would present your final project for whatever the content was to like a quote unquote authentic audience of stakeholders. So like, the principal or the chamber of commerce, or I don't know, whatever type of community audience, PBL, especially new tech, the organization that I was working with was like very big on bringing in like guest speakers and other people to like present your final work to, which I think is like fine and can be all well and good. But a big lesson that I've had to sort of relearn this year in good and bad ways is that 
the most authentic and the most valuable audience that high schoolers have is each other. And so those moments when you have that moment of like giving, passing the crown and like the group being proud of each other in the moment, in the classroom, those types of structures are, I think, super important because uh, that is motivating. Just like to have the other people in the room celebrate what you're doing. You know, it doesn't have to be fancy. It's just, it's just, you know, building the structures where you're presenting your work to each other and celebrating each other. I think that's, that was really cool. Yeah. And so we'll see how it goes. Uh, novels and are always difficult because they're the students who have been fully engaged with it, including the outside class reading. And they're the students who are just getting by, getting by, getting by. And then it comes to, oh, I have to write about this. And, I, yeah. and I'm very open and blunt with them that like, these first three weeks where we've been analyzing, discussing different parts of the novel, doing the reading, that's the foundation for the house you're going to build. And if you don't do that, the house mm-hmm. you're going to build is going to fall apart and you're yeah. going to look to me for support. And the first thing I'm going to say is that you, the foundation isn't there. And I, I, I can't build that foundation for you. I can give you tools to build that foundation. So I think that's where I'm sure there will be some difficult conversations over the next few weeks. But I mean, that's, I guess that's part of life. But uh you ready for a right. difficult conversation? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk. Let's talk AI essays. So yeah, and I think this is not. This is going to sound like a very like niche English teacher thing, but I really think it goes beyond our subject area. So I'm just going to yeah, give a, a so little anecdote. Sure. I'm going to ask you know Jim what he would do or how he feels about this. So, uh, and I've shared this story with my students already, but. Essentially, and I'm not going to get into like the nerdiness of the actual data programs, etc. But we're at the point right now with artificial intelligence technology, where if you have a writing prompt, you can open up freely available like the programs are out there. I've I've played with them. uh, And you can enter that writing prompt into this online program with AI and ask it to create an original piece of writing that either is completely original or you can write the first part, it will mimic your style and voice and complete the rest of the essay meeting the parameters. Like that program's available. It's not perfect yet, but every it's probably within a few years of being as easy as, you know, Grammarly, as easy mm-hmm. as Googling something online. So when you think about that, Jim, as an English teacher who was just talking about students struggling to come up with their own essays and get across the finish line, how does that make you feel as a teacher that that's the world we are kind of already in? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts on this. Um, So my first, my first, uh, where do I start? Okay, let's start with Grammarly. My students have Grammarly too. And it doesn't make for better writing in their essays, right? Like if you if you don't know what the grammar rules are, then you're sort of, I feel like a good metaphor here is like driving an automatic car without knowing how to drive. Like, sure, an automatic car will you know, you don't have to actually switch gears. I don't even, I, I learned how to drive on a stick shift, but I don't know if they even make them anymore. But I feel like it's kind of like driving an automatic car without knowing how to drive. Like just because the car will shift gears for you while you're driving, like you're, 
you're still in charge and you still have to know like the rules of the road and know when to stop and slow down and all that stuff. Um, I know Tesla's getting into like completely self-driving cars, but I feel like the metaphor still stands. And I mean, I guess my question is this, like what, what is the real world use case? What's the purpose of AI writing, right? Are businesses and companies going to be using this? Oh, they are like, already. Yeah. Like, so, in, and in what ways? So I think I would push back against the metaphor of Grammarly, which is specific to it is revising and clarifying like language errors. So like, oh, this is a run on sentence. Oh, you misspelled this. Like that's trim. It affects presentation and people look at presentation. So if I write an email that has poor grammar, that could mm-hmm. affect the outcome of that response or people might judge me for it. That's an entirely different thing than what we were just talking about with the idea of original interpretation that I came up with this idea. And I think oftentimes from the English teacher lens, so often when we're given feedback, it can funnel towards, oh, here's some grammar errors. Here's some spelling errors or puncture. Like it's all language and presentation. And I try to talk a lot about students. Like, honestly, we can deal with that. We will. But the most important thing is the argument you're making, your ability to follow through on that argument with complexity and clarity. And if that now is something that you can click a button and generate its own idea, I mean, the the story that we look at is I ask students, what's the point of art? And we talk about it. And then I say, okay, there are a bunch, there's a very big industry of writers right now in the self-publishing industry who are using artificial intelligence to create novels at a faster pace. So Mm -hmm. they've already built their style. They write their paragraph. They put it in the generator. It spits out the next few pages. They go back and edit it. And and they're coming up with characters. They're coming up with plot lines. And that is the artificial intelligence is part of that process. And they're selling those novels with their name on them in the same way they were. And they're, you know, working at a pace. And is that art? Like, what do we do with that as readers? But like, that is what, in terms of technology, if you're a company that needs to create your messaging and your messaging campaign, you can do the exact same thing. Say like in one that takes away jobs that you, you know, might be paying people for. But I just, it comes back to the idea of originality. It comes back to the idea of interpretation. Mm -hmm. And I really am flummoxed a little bit of what that means for us if we're artificially creating those in the first place now. Yeah. So, all right. A couple thoughts on this. One is about politics. You know, I read a lot about politics. The midterms just happened. And then the other one, I think, so this tweet that you sent me about the essay writing in Google Classroom, that was on my timeline too. And I I, I want to go in kind of hard on this one. Okay. Uh, and we'll see how this goes. But, okay. If we step back for a moment, and use politics as, you know, not certainly not the only, but this is an important way to understand the relationship between a speaker and an audience, right? Does a politician or can a politician effectively use language to connect with their constituents and motivate their constituents, right? That is the essence for better or for worse. Ideally, I think, of how to get elected. Can you connect with your, can you connect with your people and make them 
believe that what you have to say is important. And I feel like, you know, the big lesson that I have been learning and thinking about through this entire political era is the idea of authenticity. Like, does a politician, and I, you know, I had a lot of problems with the Trump presidency, uh, but certainly the main motivating factor that he, in why he got elected was people thought that he was authentic. Like he was speaking authentically. He wasn't sort of sugarcoating it. And then you also look at like a lot of these tightly controlled Democratic and Republican advertising and messaging. And you can kind of tell when it's like been filtered through seven different focus groups and 10 different consultants and like you're tuning in the language just right. And I feel like we're moving in a way where people, even if they don't know that that's why it feels inauthentic, like it does and can feel really inauthentic when you have this stump speech that is very, very canned. And like the most successful politicians, I feel like are the ones, like if you look at John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, like he had a, he has an, a sense of authenticity and like his entire vibe and his entire, like that's the thing that makes him unique. Yeah, he wears a sweatshirt and he goes around and he like, uses Pennsylvania slang, but like, it's really not an act. I feel like even the people who don't like him and who don't vote for him, it's will at least concede. Yeah, no, he's authentic. And the same thing is true. I think with Bernie Sanders, like my dad, who's extremely conservative and who, who talks a lot about politics, thinks that Bernie is like way out in left field and would never vote for the policies. But my dad likes Bernie. Like he thinks he's a good guy. He thinks he's, he thinks that he, you know, he do, he doesn't take anything away from him because he thinks that Bernie is legitimate. And I think in, uh, you know, obviously politics is not the only place. I think, I think it comes out in pop culture too. Like the reason that pop stars, which is the, which is the greatest illusion of all, because pop music is like completely canned and completely, it's all the same four chords over and over again right but the pop stars and the culture the people who are in the culture will become really big because people feel a sense of connection and so my my point in bringing that up is it's gonna take a while and i'm not sure if it's ever gonna be the case where ai can feel that authentic and that human maybe it can maybe it can i'm not sure but I kind of don't think it does. And I don't think it will. Yeah. Well, uh, the article I read uh, that was about this, like the person at the very end is like, by the way, I wrote this with artificial intelligence. And I was like, so I was pretty, uh, that shocked yeah. me in that sense. But so I guess two points to that, and we're going to really break through the guardrails here. Uh, I think that we, the feeling of needing authenticity and value and authenticity more than ever makes sense. I agree with you. I think that that is something that is valued, but I also think that we almost like tell ourselves we value that, but then we go out in the world and we make the decisions that we do that oftentimes reflect the opposite value. So you're a company that says we really value authenticity, but you get your job applications and you're probably scrapping mm -hmm. 
the ones that have all the mistakes and are really authentic stories and you want the ones that fit your parameters. We look at the voting results. Incumbents did way better than people on the exteriors in this last election. In the last in the midterm, the people who played it safe, like the, you know, the good old boys on either side who had the support of their parties and were much less extreme either to the left or the right, have done better statistically in these midterm elections. So I think sometimes we talk and I know that, you know, Fetterman won. I know that there are some you know, anecdotal examples, but I mean, one, he was going against someone who was even more extreme right. on one side. So right. I think that authenticity is valued more, but I also think because it's valued more, I mean, look at the reality TV construct. Like we've played with, uh, you know, authenticity so much that now it's like performative and like we can generate it from Brene Brown all the way to other aspects. And mm-hmm. So what I, it makes me pull back and think, okay, like what is originality in this today's world? Like what is art in this current moment? Uh, And I don't know, I I guess I'm all over the place. Let me try to rein it in with a question. Yeah. Back to your high school experience and think about the world that we're in. What did you not get from your school that you wish you got your schooling that you wish you had? Like what was the biggest gap between reality and the education you received? That's a great question. Um, I mean, collaboration, the, the ability to work with other people, the ability to like, and we got some of that, like we had some group projects, but hands down, I mean, obviously my career is only in education, but I feel like it's pretty true, pretty true across industry. Like, can you, can you show up and be eager and humble and interested? And can you collaborate really well? I think that skill, and and it is a skill, right? Being emotionally intelligent, knowing when to step up, knowing when to step back, knowing how your words are going to be read by other people which I always come back to is the essence of AP Lang and why it's really important. <laughs> but that skill, I would say, is the biggest one that, that isn't as prioritized. And that's the, that, is, that is, to me, like AI writing is the antithesis of that skill. It's, it's, the, it's entirely pivoting away from collaboration. Now, if you, you know, if you have an essay and you're like, all right, I spit this out with AI. Now let's take a look at it as a group and and revise it, improve it and make it better. I'm a little bit on the fence about how much I like that. I don't love it. Like I would, I would much rather have people discussing and revising and peer editing essays that they wrote entirely by themselves. But yeah, I would say, I mean, the quick answer that I have is collaboration. Do you have like, do you have a different one? Yeah, I I think you're right that the ability to collaborate in meaningful ways in different contexts and something like from project-based learning to like seminars, like more of that would have been valuable and getting away from more like, you know, the very straightforward, you know, here are your notes, et cetera. And the most meaningful things I think of 
in my education experience were those moments where we did like the mock trial, we did the different things that right. pushed into collaboration. Uh, I think technology, technological collaboration, when you think about what we are currently doing a lot of our uh, communication on from, you know, texting to uh, social media platforms to, you know, remote video at this point, I know this is new mm-hmm. <laughs> at the time, but, or to the degree it does, but it almost like I wish that like my students could be paired up with like groups of students from different parts of the country or even the world and being saying, okay, in January, we're going to stop our normal schedule. We're going to have a collaborative group project. Here's your task. You're going to come to school for this entire two weeks. You can message with these other students who you've been randomly assigned with from other parts of the country or world. And your job is to create this online presentation completely through remote work. Uh, Mm -hmm. with each other and we are going to monitor the way you communicate so like you're going to be open access so your teacher's going to give you feedback about how you're showing up as a group member your teacher's going to coach you through how you're participating in your own ideas to the project like i think that is where there's a gap is that you know i've got a room of 35 students 30 students and i send them out into group work it's hard to coach them through the group process of how they're successful other than like personal reflection, I read the reflection, et cetera. But doing that and then doing that in online spaces, because so often right now, a lot of that work's happening in online. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, let's collaborate on this Google Doc and all participate to this. And, and and there's also like a bandwidth issue. It's hard to give that real-time feedback to eight groups simultaneously as a teacher. But I think collaboration, you hit the nose on it, but I think it has to look different than what it used to look like too. Yeah. I have a quick story and then I want to go, I'm, I, I, I want to go in hard on this AI prompt, this whole thing. Um, you know, it's interesting that you brought that up about around remote collaboration, because I also remember to use another story from Arkansas, um, a time when I taught the Hobbit, I'm a big Tolkien fan and we were able to do this weird PBLs, uh, the co-teacher that I was at, we were in a geography unit and I was like, all right, well, what's a piece of fiction that really centers the idea of like geography. (laughs) And of course I had Tolkien in my back pocket. And so we read the Hobbit and, you know, we studied the maps and we read the book and they, they did a project on, I believe, I believe they made a board game actually uh, about the Hobbit. And my co-teacher was teaching geography, teaching like how to read maps and, and you like, they had a geography unit and I think it went pretty well. But the cool part about that project was that at the end and coming back to an authentic audience, my students presented remotely to my old professor, her, I I knew that my old professor from St. Lawrence taught this Tolkien seminar. And I knew that that was going on at the time when my students finished the project. So I emailed her. And I said, can you have like six of your students who are studying, who are working on Tolkien right now, can you have them be the audience for my eighth grade Hobbit presentations and have them give feedback on it? And she thought that was an incredible idea. She thought it was really powerful and cool and they did it and it was awesome. And then, you know, I remember getting an email back from her thinking, saying like that, basically saying that was one of the most fun and interesting and valuable learning experiences that she has done with her students 
um, since she had started the class. And at that point, I think the class was like three or four years old. And it just, it, I bring it up because your, your idea around remote collaboration, I think is really important. And, and obviously there's remote work, but it still comes back to this like unique human experience. Like even though it was, even though it happened on zoom, there was a, well, at that point, I think it was Skype or some other web platform. This was in, you know, way pre COVID. But the point is that it was a unique human experience that was new and interesting and thoughtful um, that made it so valuable and not necessarily the remote tools. They were, they were sort of an avenue to create that. And they certainly create more expansive opportunities, but they don't, in many ways, I feel like they don't really create different opportunities. I feel like there would have been a similar feeling of interest and even a heightened feeling of interest and value if everyone was in the same room. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So uh, no, I agree. I think that's awesome. And I think that the collaborative aspect is part of what makes it unique. And I think what my interpretation of seeing these new tools around artificial intelligence, uh, I have a different tangent I want to go on in a bit, but the one is that the more our classrooms are formulaic, where we're trying to ask students to fit their ideas into a box that we've always fit them into, the less valuable that skill itself is, the ability to write within confinements and expectations, because that's the thing that basically is coming. Like the idea Mm -hmm. that, okay, write this essay on characterization and theme for this book, like let, or let's think about our AP exams, like the idea that this is the expectation of the course where you're drilling students to fit their ideas within the box. That's what's going to be replaced, or at least at the end of the day, they're going to be one click away from doing. So it pushes me as a teacher to think, because I, I know right now what's going to happen is there's going to be all these new plagiarism tools. And here's how you catch the AI, or we're just going right. to do all in-class essays because they can't, you know, I there's going to be like this gotcha game that's already been existing with other factors of development. And I don't like that game. Cause I think it's, you're going to wave, like I'd wave a white flag right now. We're never going to beat technology when it comes to that. And mm. we're going to waste a lot of energy and turn off a lot of students and trying to pl- catch them in those type of aspects. But so what it motivates me is what am I doing in my classroom to push students to write outside the box or to redesign the box themselves uh, we end the year with a multi-genre type writing project where they're bringing in audio, they're bringing in art, they're synthesizing different forms of writing into one piece and presenting it to peers. Uh, like that's the thing, like, and I tell them straightforward about it. It's like, I want you to be able to create your own box or I honestly mm-hmm. deconstruct the box itself of what writing can be because that's the real skill and it'll be even more valued in a world where the box is one click away. And I think what I struggle with is what does that mean for the boxed writing that we still have to do if it's one click away? Yeah. So, I mean, there, yeah, there's a concern about the gotcha games and there's a concern about like, how are we going to get around this technology and how are we going to beat it? And I feel like the answer is to not try. Like you don't really even have to try, but just like handwrite your essays. Like the first draft should be handwritten, right? Like, don't let's not get into that yet. Let's get like I I think 
that even if the, I think there's a ton of value and still a ton of value and, and it's not going to be lost in handwriting your work. It, you slow down, you think more clearly. Like I, I genuinely believe that like handwriting stuff ahead of time leads to better writing. Jim, how Maybe many that- times do you handwrite things that you create as an adult before you type them? I mean, it depends on what I'm writing, but if I want to, if I want to write like a longer essay or something that's intention, like something that's intentional, I will generally start with a handwritten outline or at least at the very least, like handwritten notes. Okay. Yeah. Do you think, I mean, emails, are you normal in that way? Or are you just that? Cause I, I, I'm an English teacher. I love handwrite. I don't do that. Yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe I'm not like I, I, you know, thinking I had, of course I had a lot of outlines and stuff in college on, on the computer. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, I, I feel like there, I feel like cognitively it's, it's just an, I feel like there's value in it. Like, I just feel like there's value in handwriting at least, at least shorter, smaller pieces, right of and knowing how to just from your it's just only you and a pen and pencil and you're writing two or three paragraphs i think that there's a lot of value in that and slowing down and getting through that process but maybe maybe not i don't know we're gonna are we gonna mandate cursive now in jim's world no no I'll, well, maybe this is another pot. Maybe this is another pot. The value of you get a little, uh, you know, make writing great again, Jim. Like back in the yeah. nostalgia in this pot. The pot. Well, let me, let me, let me get to this point then of the <laughs> of the actual prompt because this this AI tweet. Uh, if people, we can link it in the notes. There's a tweet that came out, uh, sort of advertising this AI mm-hmm. essay, um, and it just it really sort of bugged me. And so I want to, I want to like talk about it. <laughs> okay. Cause so, I, I do what I just to hang on to your point. I, as much as do see that value that you're talking about with the hand, cause I do think creating your own original thoughts and doing it through handwritten is a great process for thinking, but I also struggle with the idea that we're doing things in our classroom that are divorced from the reality students are walking into. And I think, there is this entrenchment, like I mean, our English, math, social studies, science curricula, that we just keep doing things the same way and telling ourselves there's value in doing stuff the same way when the world itself continues to change and the chasm between the world and our education is getting wider and wider. And at some point, we have to be willing to step away from our comfort zones as teachers too and shift our values to match the current moment and not just pin it in nostalgia. I'm not saying that's all you're doing, but I do feel it. Cause I agree with you and I'm trying to hold that agreement and think about it. Like, is that agreement rooted on me projecting my experiences or is it rooted in like an actual understanding of what students need? Yeah. I mean, I think I I'd be curious to look, I'm, re- I'm remembering make it stick, uh, which is a book that I read on like the science of learning. I don't have it in front of me, but I I feel like I remember the value, like they talked about like the value of handwriting flashcards and like mm-hmm. the process of encoding things. And I, I don't know, I'm not, I'm going to, I'm not, I'm not abandoning handwriting 
just okay. yet. But well, I do, well, I yeah. do well, back to Twitter before it all disintegrates in the next few. It's weeks. gone. Twitter's already gone. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, let me. So let's let's not talk about this in the abstract. This is this is the AI. You know, we. I'm sure it's getting better, and we can we can pick it apart and all that. But this is at least the example that we have, right? So there was there was a tweet that sort of advertised this AI essay this AI essay prompt. And it's like, Oh, look, you can write a 1500 word essay on anything you want in 45 seconds. So the prompt was that the AI responded to was write an essay about how natural and man-made disasters have impacted Japan during the 20th century. How has its geography and location impacted its susceptibility to natural disasters as well as political strengths and susceptibilities? Okay. First of all, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad prompt, but like, it's pretty, it's pretty fact-based. Like it's pretty, like the answer to that prompt is not very argumentative. I would, I would say like, I think it does get there in terms of like, to what extent has susceptibility to natural disasters impacted politics but like it's effectively just a, a report. Like the answer to this question is discuss the facts of Japan's geography. And then so my first thing is like, okay, you're not you're not asking the AI to make a very complex argument. And even to the extent that it does ask you to make a complex argument, it gets it wrong. And it doesn't, it doesn't actually discuss. Like it doesn't, it doesn't go beyond listing those facts. So it said the AI says it's just saying Japan is a country that is highly susceptible to natural disasters, and then it repeats that phrase. Japan is also highly susceptible. So as you see these repetitions of the phrasing, if you're reading it as an authentic reader, you're going to pick that up. Like that repetition of phrase is is very easy and very apparent. But then the other thing it says is that. Where did it go? Um, the expansion, the most significant natural disaster to impact Japan during the 20th century was the Great Hansen Earthquake of 1995. Okay. You can pull that off Wikipedia or something. The earthquake killed over 6,000 people and caused billions of dollars in damage. The earthquake was followed by a series of devastating tsunamis that caused even more damage. The most significant man-made disaster to impact Japan during the 20th century was the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant accident of 2011. This accident was caused by a massive earthquake and tsunami. The accident resulted in the release of radioactive material. And as a result, blah, blah, blah. That's not a man-made disaster. You had a nuclear plant that was... Uh, that got blown up and disrupted by natural disasters, the earthquake and the tsunami. And so it's like, and, and the AI is not attempting, the AI makes no attempt to say it would have, even though it, this was a man, there's no attempt or recognition to reconcile that like, yeah, the nuclear power plant was man-made, but actually it was a natural disaster that caused that. And so I, my, the point that I'm trying to make here is like, yeah, I'm sure that the AI will get better and all this technology will improve and 
perhaps you can make the more nuanced and complex argument, but like, I just don't think it will. I don't think it will be able to seamlessly engage in those nuances unless you're a human being and who can, who like, I don't know. I don't think that it will. Yeah. I guess we're just going to be diametrically opposed here. I believe it will. I think the fact that if you look at the pace of artificial intelligences and writing, just purely writing, there's all these other realms of AI, like it has dramatically improved itself in in a matter of years and it's open source and will continue to. Uh, Two, I, I feel like trying to like play gotcha games with specific essays, this is the larger point that we ask students to write pretty generic things quite often in our education system that that would be better than a lot of the things students tend to produce on first draft and turn in at times. Uh, thinking back to our conversation at the beginning of this, and then think about like the, the grading system for the AP exam is a bunch of teachers in a room getting together and grading things in like 10 seconds or less, just like speed reading, this hit the marks, boom, 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 check, move on. You don't think AI can do enough to get that done? I, I just, I think that our education system does at times build itself around efficiency and, and mm-hmm. doesn't have, I think we can talk in this ideal world of complexity and nuance. And I think that that's what we strive for. But I also think in the day to day, sometimes it's like, I just need you to turn in the stuff and I'm just going to mark it off at a basic level happens, unfortunately. And how does artificial intelligence and what that means collide with that world? Because it's it's going to happen. It's happening already. And there's a lot of plus side. Like I'm open, like think about independent, individualized learning, like the idea of a program. I, I think back to this is a really old school thing. When did you, you learn keyboarding in school, right? Elementary? Oh, sure. Mavis Beacon, big fan. Yeah. And I remember it was the thing I liked about that was as soon as I got one letter down, they just got gave me another letter and you were like moving at your own pace through the curriculum. In today's world, that exists for pretty much every skill set where like I could put you in front of a computer on this math course. And as you develop this skill, it'll adjust to where you're at as a learner. And I think mm-hmm. there is an argument, like there is a place for that too, that could amplify our ability to individually support students uh, as learners. But then, of course, that brings in intrinsic motivation. And then what is it about the classroom community? So I'm all over the place. I think this conversation's all over the place a little bit today too, in a, in a genuine way. Well, it's a new, yeah, it's a new, it's a new pretty thing. uncharted thing. Yeah. I'm, so I guess I'm my mindset and where I'm different than you, it seems like to to circle it together as we get closer to the end of this discussion is I guess I believe in the ability of artificial intelligence more to to just be something that is going to entirely shift our paradigm of what generating writing, generating ideas looks like going forward. And I think we don't have a good way I don't think we're even close to thinking about what our job as writing teachers is in that world where artificial intelligence can generate the ideas from the get go. Yeah. I mean, I have no doubt that it will be a huge impact and game changer. I mean, just look at how the internet has completely changed education, right? Like this is, this is a new version. This is a a fundamentally new iteration of what technology can do. But like the internet didn't eliminate, you know, 
the need for good teaching. It was a tool just like anything else. And to come back to like, I, I would say, I would say, I would set the bar for authentic writing as the moment when you're one group of students handed over the crown to another group of students. Right. And the question is, could AI do that? Could AI, could AI produce something that would create that same moment? Like, could that group who earned the crown from the other group of students, right? Could they have, could they have caused that reaction with an essay prompt that they plugged into AI? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Like I, I really don't. And I, and I don't think so is my point. Like, I feel like in order to have that moment happen, there needed to be such a, such a significant level of deep reading and connection to other ideas and, and like complex connections over time to multiple themes. I, I just don't know that a computer can actually do that, but I, I, Maybe I'm wrong. I'm certainly I'm certainly open to the idea that I'm wrong. Okay. But I I'm not I'm not convinced that it can be entirely authentic and insightful and nuanced in the way that a person can, especially in the humanities, especially when re- and especially when reading poetry and literature and essays and that kind of stuff. I'll compromise with you on this. I think you're right that it can't hit that peak of originality and creativity and that that is why originality and creativity going back to the beginning of our conversation has that much more value in the world we're walking into and the ability to be creative and generative on your own is going to matter even more because I, my flip side of this is I don't think on a day-to-day experience education asks creativity and originality from students nearly as much as we sometimes pretend it does across the curriculum, across different courses. I think so often it's about, can you arrive at the right answer? Can you make your writing look the way that we want it to look? Can you write within this box? We, that is what education often is. I think back on my education experience and how often it felt like I'm just trying to get the right answer and it's there. And Mm -hmm. you're essentially taking the back of the book and like it's a click away now and not just mm-hmm. a multiple choice answer, but even in longer form generative things. And I think that is where I'm trying to be humble about, yes, I have these ideals of I want that crown discussion to happen as much as possible, but I also know it doesn't. And now I'm almost more worried about the times that it doesn't because that's really what's the value in the student being able to Google, oh, a theme of this book okay, there's Mm -hmm. the theme. Let me find pieces of evidence that kind of fit and tie it into that theme there, get a C on the essay, move on. Like that's the thing that I think happens sometimes more often than we like to admit. And that's the part that's going to be completely replaced. So the, your top end moments, your peak moments that we like to glorify as these amazing anecdotes, which I just did at the start of this episode, those are still there. But the rest of the icebergs whittling away into the ocean, and the 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 sea levels are rising, Jim. That's my. They, I mean, I we don't. You don't have to compromise. We can we can disagree. It's okay. all right. I I agree that the sea levels are rising, but I just I feel like 
I guess where I'm approaching it is, okay, what's the, I, I view it as an instructional, I would view it as an instructional tool like anything else. And my, my bar for like creative and insightful thought is not going to change regardless of what tools the students have available to them. Um, but it's going to be new. It's going to like, I definitely think this is coming for sure. I think it's already here. Uh, going back to the, the sea levels are already higher than they were. Not if they handwrite their first draft though. Did you, <laughs> I'm just going to plug it. Yeah. Handwriting first draft solves global warming. There we go. It might, it might, it'll at least, it'll at least fend off all the robots at first. I really am picturing you right now, like giving cursive feedback to your students and like music playing. I don't know. Just like the, the, Not, the day. I can imagine you even 10 years from now being more entrenched in your back in the dayism. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not giving up on handwriting. I don't think that's, I don't, I don't, I don't see, I have a pretty fixed mindset about handwriting. Cursive, cursive is a little bit different. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna get too far on that, but yeah, point made, point taken. Let's, before we wrap up, tell me something good about a teacher you had, like let's throw your shout out out there. Yeah. um, I'm going to go with, uh, this guy's name is Chris Buck. He's a college professor. I, I don't actually know if he's still at St. Lawrence, but I took, um, I, I, he's on my mind, especially after this conversation, just because of how sort of simple and elegant his classes were. He was a government professor. And I remember taking, I took multiple classes with him just because I really liked how simple and elegant and clear his classes were. And just like, there were no frills. I, I mean, I happened to be really interested in like environmental political thought. And like, I also took a political theory course with him that I was, you know, which that's not everyone's cup of tea. I get that. But his classes were just very straightforward. And every class meeting, they, you know, we would come in and it was just, it was effectively a Socratic seminar every single day. You'd come in, you would sit down. And he would kind of be saying, he was this like tall, lanky guy. And he was just like sitting in the circle with the book open and some notes. And he would say, okay, well, what did you think? And it was like a one hour discussion on Plato or, you know, these kind of obscure environmental essays. And the thing that really stuck out to me was like his in the moment responses to what people were saying demonstrated such a clear command and expertise of the reading and the material, like his ability to be like, all right, yeah, but like, what about this? What about what this person said on this page? And with immediate recall was able to like challenge and push thinking in the moment. And I just love that. Like I, and it, and it was, you know, we had a lot of writing due and we had essays due, but like the class discussions were very simple, very elegant. He did not spend a whole lot of time summarizing or breaking anything down. He, he just expected you to have read. And if you didn't, if you hadn't read, if you didn't know the material, it was very, very obvious. So I'm going to give a shout out to that type of structure, which again, I think is a testament to something that AI can't, uh, can't beat, but maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Okay. 
Yeah, and I guess so. I'm thinking I'm going to go college realm too. I'll I'll stay with you with for my shout out with the government and politics uh, course because we were required to take you know upper level uh, courses outside of our uh, major. So you know English lit major here, and I mm-hmm. you know had to take a class and I took it on constitutional law and theory, which I also nerd out on. And I had this professor who I think I look at the, all the reasons that it shouldn't have worked out this way. Like this was a tenured professor who would do his tenure dance at the start of the class and let Mm -hmm. you know that he was tenured. And there was a lot of times where he basically, if you didn't want to invest in the class and sit in the back and get a passing grade, he didn't care. Uh, But when I think back to our conversation today and the person who really just like lit a spark for me without any motivation with my major, like I was going to get the grade that I needed from the course but like mm-hmm. I remember like getting to a point where I got so excited about what I was reading and coming up with my own interpretations and my own analogies for this judicial theory that I was exploring and presenting that to like the rest of the class and how excited I was to talk with him because he was just like you were saying, he had it front and back. He knew his stuff. He would push yeah. you. He could meet you at that level. And because he could meet you at that level, it motivated me to try and get to that level. And I do think the value of expertise, the value of uh, like long held knowledge and like just like the, the body of work it takes to arrive at that level of mastery within any discipline can be motivating by itself. And to be, oh, yeah. and I know that that can also be a problem, like your ability to communicate it. Uh, Cause some of my best teachers were learning on the spot with us, with the material because it was so authentic mm-hmm. to them. But I guess that's where the both, it makes me think of the both end. How can you be, shouting out Professor Haltum or Wild Bill at University of Puget Sound for that, but on the flip side, still communicate in a way that's authentic to your students, going back to that uh, authenticity buzzword uh, that could have made our list last week. So yeah, so yeah, that's right. Well, well, it's the end of the pod, but I will, if, if anyone is still listening, I will offer my official concession to Marcus. Uh, you have won the draft uh you know i have my own thoughts on the whole process but it was certainly fun and i don't it's clear now it's clear now to me that my acronym strategy doesn't didn't work this year so we'll have to see what happens next year on the draft yeah and in the words of uh you know representative uh failed senate candidate tim ryan uh-huh. uh yeah you know, what a privilege it is to live in a country where you can concede jim so Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. There you go. So I congratulate you for that, and thank you. For, thank you. I will try to be a, a not too rub it in your face winner. Yeah, it's fine. I can take it. I can take it. Well, I think that there's more to say on this pot on this topic for sure, but we should wrap it up for today. This is good. I feel like even though we're English teachers, we should lean into this a little mm-hmm. bit more because, yeah. like. You know, there's there's good value in this AI thing because you're right. It's it's a game changer and it's coming and it's here. Yeah, I mean, maybe you, this maybe it's not even me right now, and I've just created this virtual reality replica of me that's taken listen to all our episodes and just regurgitated right. out the responses necessary. Because I, I honestly don't think we're that far away from that either. But that's a whole different realm. Yeah, I mean, maybe I would have no way of knowing. Well, especially if it was both of us and it would just be a complete waste of time with AI talking to AI. Right. But that is what is where we're at. Yeah. What is reality? That's where we're at in education. Okay. Take care. Have a good week. <laughs> or maybe if it's a week. 
Yeah, we got a full week. We got okay. a full week. All right, Marcus. Good to see you. Thanks for this. We'll see you soon. The Broken Copier is an independent, listener-supported podcast for teachers. The show is written and hosted by Marcus Luther and myself, Jim Mayers. I do editing and sound design for the show as well. Thanks to Alberto Lugo, a former student of mine, for writing and producing original intro music. Born and raised in Brooklyn, Alberto is an independent DJ and music producer based in New York City. You can find his work on Instagram at DJ Synchro and explore his portfolio at djsynchro.weebly.com. Thanks to Tom Chitari, a jazz musician, composer, and teacher currently based in Australia. Right now you're listening to Woodstock from his album Garden, available now on Spotify. You can stream all his music on Spotify under the name Uncivilized, find him on Instagram at banduncivilized, and online at uncivilizedtom.com. You can even sign up for remote guitar lessons with him, just like I do. Links are in the show notes. Thanks very much to my sister, Courtney Malavik, for the graphic design you see on our social media and episode posts. Thanks to Brandon Piasecki for helping to get this project off the ground. The goal of the show is to connect with a passionate, diverse group of educators, bring helpful analysis and collaboration, and celebrate everyone doing the hard work in the classroom. We hope to connect and direct time, resources, and energy towards concrete efforts that will improve student outcomes, especially in marginalized and underserved communities. We are not the only ones doing this. We want to honor and say thank you to the many educators out there, past, present, and future, who already understand their classroom practice through a lens of equity and change. We'd love to connect with you, hear about what you're doing, and give you a space to share your work. If you want to support the show, you can help us grow and connect for free. Reach out on social media at The Broken Copier, text an episode link to your friends in education, or even share an episode to your own social media feeds. You can email thoughts, feedback, and ideas to thebrokencopier at substack.com. You can also read other essays and thoughts on teaching and learning at thebrokencopier.substack.com where we publish all of our episodes, available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.